This is the Christian Circle Podcast and you're listening to Pamela Fernandez where we have conversations about Christian living. Here's the show. Good evening and welcome to a new episode of the Christian Circle Podcast. Today we're welcoming Charles back again who is not talking about saints today but is actually going to talk about the different forms of mass in the Catholic Church. So Charles, welcome back in... Um, Thank you. COVID world, yes. Nice <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Surviving. Yes, and uh, for people who have forgotten, tell people who you are. Uh, yeah, my name is Charles Johnston, and I am a, uh, a convert to Catholicism uh, from Evangelical Protestantism. And I've been a Catholic officially now for, uh, I think, four and a half years. But uh, unofficially, it, t- it took me over a decade to come into the church, so... Uh, I've been doing this for a while, studying about the faith, and last year, two years ago, I published a book called The Beauty of the Mass about, you know, the whole a walkthrough from beginning to end of the what we would call the ordinary form of the Catholic Mass. Okay, so what is this Mass? Because we have we have touched on this many times before, uh, so so tell people who, who, who don't really know, um, what is Mass? Right. So mass is what uh, a Catholic in the Latin, right, you know, the Latin church, so Latin Catholic, Latin Rite Catholic, what they would call our worship, how we worship God. It's our a word we use for the liturgy, right, which is the act of worship of God. So in the Western church, so there's a lot of interchangeable words I'll be using here, the Western church, Latin church, Latin right of the church. So what a lot of people think of when they think of Catholicism, because like 80% of the world's Catholics are members of the Western church, mm-hmm. right? They think of mass. When you say that Catholic, how, when you go to church, how do you worship God? Oh, we go to mass. Mm-hmm. It's the word that's commonly used. Mm-hmm. And the word mass actually comes from ita uh, mise est. So it was the final words of the mass, of the liturgy, in Latin, back when the Mass was only said in Latin, mm-hmm. and it means it is sent. So, ita misa est mm-hmm. means it is sent. It is, it kind of, it was originally meant to mean it is finished. The Mass itself is sent, this prayer is sent to God, you're sent out into the world. But then Pope Benedict XVI said that in the Christian context, the word misa, you know, which is where the word missile comes from, you know, it's to mm-hmm. send, you know, fire something to send out, it took on a whole new context to mean that it's our mission. So, you know, we were supposed to go out like in the, in the ordinary form of the mass, like the English, you know, or whatever the vernacular is, wherever you're at, the priest usually ends with, uh, the mass is finished, you know, go in peace to love and serve the Lord or the mass is finished, glorify the Lord with your life, right? There's different kind of ending formulas, but the mass itself is finished, but now we go out and live this out into the world. So that's what mass means. And that's the word that's commonly used to describe the way Catholics worship God. Okay. And a lot of this Mass is um, scriptural, right? A lot of our um, uh, the, right. the, the Great Commission, go and do this in memory of me, everything is basically scripture. This is not something that uh, they're just practices that were offhand made up by a few bunch of old right. people. Yeah, it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a bunch of old white guys in robes in the 1400s got together somewhere in Europe and invented this, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> like there's a lot of different detractors that'll say like, oh, that's, you know, high medieval uh, mysticism mixed together with ancient Roman religion and try to like invent really unsourced too. They just kind of 
throw all kinds of stuff at the wall and see what mm-hmm. sticks. Yeah. The mass itself is very, very, very deeply scriptural. Mm-hmm. It's very rooted in scripture. It's very rooted in the way that the Israelites worship God, mm-hmm. both from the time of Abraham. Uh, I mean, if you go all the way back into Genesis, when Abraham defeats the, the kings and rescues his nephew Lot, I think it's like Genesis 25, around there, he rescues his nephew and then he runs into this guy called Melchizedek, who only appears in this one spot in the Bible. It's only like three or four verses long. Melchizedek is the king of Salem, mm-hmm. right, which we later know as Jerusalem. Yes. So he's also known as so Salem means peace. So he's the king of peace, and he's a priest of God. El, uh, he's a priest of God Most High. Mm-hmm. So that's another name for the God of Israel, is God Most High. And he offers a sacrifice of bread and wine, right? So there, here's this high priest. It's kind of a type of Jesus, right? Like looking at it through Christian eyes, we can see that the king of peace, this high priest, is offering bread and wine. What does that sound like? Mm. You know, you know yeah. sure sounds like the mass. And so if you kind of look through the Old Testament, what kind of through the lens of Christianity, you can see a lot of things in the Old Testament that point towards the way we worship God in the mass. Yeah, yeah. And and um, it, it does have this entire concept of... Um, transubstantiation which which is hard to explain but for people who want to read they can go and, and read and try right. it and make some sense of it yeah i mean it comes down to if it isn't you know as catholics like you said transubstantiation that's the act of where you know the the elements that you know appear to be bread and wine become the body blood and soul and divinity of christ mm-hmm. in the hands of the priest on the altar and if that isn't so then the mass is just any other service. Mm. You know, it's no different than a prayer meeting. It's no different than whatever. It's it, There's no difference between the mass and any other kind of Christian get together, mm. right? But because we believe that when Jesus said, this is my body, we take him at his word. For there's, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why we take him at his word. That could be a whole other episode. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but because we believe that, and because Jesus said it, you know, if if Jesus, if you know, the, the word created the world, right? John says in the first chapter of John in the prologue of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was God, and through him all things was created. So if the word of God can go out from his mouth and say, you know, let there be light, and light comes from nothing, mm-hmm. right? If we believe that. And we believe that all things essentially, you know, come from God, that God created the world ex nihilo from nothing. There was nothing before God created. Then how, you know, why is it so hard? This is the way I convince myself of it. I said, why is it so hard for me to believe that he could say this is my body and it becomes his body? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, why do I doubt that if I believe all these other things about God, that he can be put to death and then raised from the dead three days later? Mm-hmm. You know, that's yeah. something that doesn't normally happen <laughs> on a regular day. So... Yeah. We do believe in extraordinary things, and this is an extraordinary miracle that we witness every time we go to Mass, we see a miracle happen. Mm. And I mean, kind of <laughs> off topic a little bit, but you know, it's all, it's a very interconnected. The Mass, yeah. the Eucharist, the priesthood, it's all, you know, without one, you don't have the others. The other, yeah. So there are various traditions of Mass. So most people would have walked inside a church and realized, oh, there's something going on here, and there's the priest, he's got his back to the altar. You go to another tradition and then they have a different form of the way they're celebrating. Their service is three hours long. So what are the various traditions of Mass? 
right? So the what the like I said before, eighty percent of the world's Catholics. I'm you know guessing on that number. I think it's seventy five, eighty percent are what we know as Latin Rite Catholics. A lot of people call them Roman Catholics, mm-hmm. right? So I'm a member of the Latin Rite Church. Yeah. Uh, the word Roman Catholic kind of was a pejorative that was invented during the English Reformation to say, like, they're foreigners, basically, mm-hmm. you know, to cast aspersions on Catholics during the English Reformation. Uh, but a lot of people call it, you know, say Roman Catholics kind of become a common term. That tradition grew up in Rome, as you know, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so when St. Peter goes to Rome before he's martyred by Nero and the, the church kind of grows up in Rome, the language, you know, the lingua franca, the language of the people in Rome was Latin. Yeah. And everyone read Latin, everyone spoke Latin. And the service, the mass that would take place would usually be done in Latin. So the, the original, you know, the first masses were probably done in Aramaic, mm-hmm. right? Because you got to yeah. consider that it's the apostles. Yeah are doing what Jesus done, and Jesus spoke Aramaic as his everyday language. Mm-hmm. So the first original Masses, before the church was scattered from Jerusalem, would have probably been in Aramaic, maybe Greek too, because mm-hmm. all the Gospels were written in Greek. So as the church spreads out, the church goes, you know, first they go on to Antioch and Damascus, and then they have spread, you know, St. Paul takes the Gospel to, uh, you know, Corinth and Ephesus and Athens, and eventually all the way to Rome. St. Peter and Paul are both martyred in Rome. Mm-hmm. So in the first, you know, within 50 years of the resurrection, we have the church basically covering the entire Mediterranean coast, like all the Roman Empire, what was, yeah. the, what was the Roman Empire at the time. And it starts to take on local characteristics. Mm-hmm. Probably not in the first century, probably not in the second century. But by about the third century, you've got the, the Western Empire, because at the time, it's kind of getting into a little bit of history. So, But at the time, uh, I think it was Emperor Diocletian. So it's 290 mm-hmm. AD. Emperor Diocletian splits the empire in half, makes the Eastern Empire and the Western half of the empire. Mm-hmm. Each one's ruled by a different guy, you know, but they're all subject to the one emperor in Rome. Mm-hmm. And the East, the reason he done that was the Eastern Empire was very, very Greek. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the remnants of Alexander the Great's, you know, Greek Empire that was eventually conquered by the Romans about 100 years before Christ. Mm-hmm. And it's very Greek in nature, it's Greek in language, it's it's a very Greek empire. But the Western Empire was very Latin, it had a whole different feel to it, it was very Roman. Mm-hmm. So he splits it like that, and it ends up that the church kind of takes on these characteristics of where they're at. Mm-hmm. So the church based in Edessa, or in Antioch, or in Jerusalem has a more Hellenistic, a more Greek feel to it. Mm-hmm. And so they speak Greek, they read the scriptures in Greek, and all that. Okay. So as time goes on, these kind of, the the differences kind of become deeper and more dividing, right? Mm-hmm. So eventually, you start having splits off from the church from uh, theological differences too, like the Council of Chalcedon. Mm-hmm. There's a, a split from the church, and there's what's known as the uh, Oriental Orthodox Church mm. splits off, okay. right? So that's like the Coptics yeah. and the Armenians and uh, the it's called the Assyrian Church of the East. Yeah. So they split off because they have a different definition of the nature of Christ. Does he have, you know, one nature? Does he have two natures? Is it two natures that are mixed together? So that's the Chalcedon Council that was around 435 caused that first kind of, that was the first major split in Christianity. Mm-hmm. And then you go on, and the, the date that a lot of people give is 1054 for the Great Schism. Mm-hmm. And that's when the East and the West completely 
break. Mm. It really wasn't a one-time thing. It kind of had happened over the course of about 100 years, mm. a couple hundred years maybe. But eventually the East and the West split and all the Eastern bishops fall out of communion with Rome. Okay. So the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, is no longer in communion with the bishops of all these Eastern sees. Mm -hmm. And so the, the development of the liturgy and stuff kind of, like I said, it deepens. Mm -hmm. But a lot of them Eastern liturgies, they all kind of had different things in common. So there was different kind of families, depending on what area each liturgy grew up from, mm -hmm. is what, you know, the kind of the flavor that it had, the differences it had. But they all, they're all essentially the same, mm -hmm. right? Like they all have the same elements and then they're all based kind of on the Old Testament worship of Israel and also the Last Supper and the Road to Emmaus. So you've got them same movements going on in the liturgy, mm -hmm. but they all are slightly different. Okay. And it's good to point out that uh, as of uh, a couple of years ago, or I don't know if it was last year, that the Eastern Orthodox churches and the Western churches had uh, a kind of understanding where they were going to try and meet again on, on various differences, right? right? Right. Well, yeah, I also left out the, there's a church called the Maronite Church. They're in uh, Lebanon mm -hmm. and they're an Eastern Catholic Church that has never broke communion with the Pope. Mm -hmm. They've been in communion with Rome the whole time. But that's so that's 1054. They split apart in around the 14 or 1500s. Some of them start approaching the Pope and saying, like, we like to be in communion mm -hmm. with Rome again. So that's where we get the Eastern Catholic churches from. Mm -hmm. So there's. You know, there's the Byzantine Catholic Church, there's the Melkite, Chaldean, uh, the Maronites. So there's all these different, there's 23 Eastern Catholic churches. Mm -hmm. And they all came back into communion at different times. Mm -hmm. You know, there were some all the way up until the 1800s. I think the Chaldeans came back into communion in the late 1800s. But there's all these different groups come back into communion with Rome. And so a lot of Eastern Catholics will call themselves Orthodox in communion with Rome, okay. right? So they're in communion with Rome. They're Catholic. They're just as Catholic as I am. Mm. There really is no difference in their Catholicity, but their liturgy is different and their theology is slightly different too. Like where the West, where we, uh, we talk about like transubstantiation and we try to have kind of more of a, like a Thomas Aquinas way of figuring out the way things, they're much more comfortable with saying things are a mystery. You know, they'll say the mystery of this and the mystery of that. And everything's a mystery. And not a mystery as in, like, it's completely unknowable, but just we're not going to try to figure out the mind of God. We're just perfectly happy with thinking that, you know, how does the how does bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ? Well, it's a mystery mm. in a good way. You know, they're much more comfortable with, whole, with mystery, where in the West we're more analytical yeah. and we want to know how exactly. And I, you know, as much as I love, I go to divine, they call it divine liturgy, what we would call the Mass. As much as I love divine liturgy, and I go probably once every couple of months to a divine liturgy, I like the analytical way of figuring out the way things work. It's just mm -hmm. so kind of, I feel kind of split between the two. <laughs> now, we focus that they are unique in the way that their theology works and um, the, the way they, they have their tradition. So what are the biggest similarities between all of these, despite the fact that they are different, at the heart right. of it all, what what are the what is the the similarity between all of these traditions? Why is it still the one mass? Right. Well, the the, the biggest similarity is, uh, they have so even the Eastern Orthodox that are not in communion with us, not Eastern Catholic, 
they have valid holy orders because their bishops are validly ordained bishops. So they have valid holy orders. Mm -hmm. And so when they say the anaphora, right, which we would call the Eucharistic prayer, mm -hmm. when they say that prayer and they call down the spirit upon the gifts that are on the altar, it really does become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. just the same as it does in St. Peter's Basilica, mm -hmm. you know, or St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. Yeah. You go there, you go to, you know, whatever the local Byzantine Catholic church down the street or an Eastern Orthodox church, and it's all validly confected Eucharist. Mm. So that's the, the main similarity that we have with both the Eastern Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox is they have valid holy orders, they have valid priests, and so, you know, by extension, they have a valid Eucharist. Mm. And the, the Mass or the Divine Liturgy, depending on where you're at, is the one same sacrifice of christ on calvary so we're mm. still we're present and they make that really clear too like <laughs> when you're in a divine liturgy you know there's it's i don't mean to talk down my latin church you know <laughs> but some you know some latin churches that really a lot you go to your average parish church they really stripped away the beauty mm. you know and they, they've stripped away a lot of the symbolism and stuff mm. and especially churches that were, you know, recovated in the 1960s and 70s. They took down any kind of religious art, they mm. repainted the walls, they changed the altar. So now you go into a church and it looks like a gymnasium with a square <laughs> table over the front, right? Yeah. It doesn't change. It doesn't change. It's still a valid mass and still a valid Eucharist. But by losing that beauty, it's one of the transcendence of the church, you know, truth, beauty, and goodness. Mm. By losing the beauty, you lose a lot of the symbolism. And by losing the symbolism, you can forget where you're at. Yeah. You go into an Eastern church. So go into that. I encourage everyone, you know, anyone, everyone I talk to, even not just people listening to this podcast, <laughs> my friends, I tell them, like, listen, you need to go to a, a Byzantine church and see how they do things. It's, mm. it's amazing. Yeah. You know, it really is. And it reminds me of if you go to like a, uh, a traditional Latin mass, mm. it's the same kind of thing, like the incense and the, yeah. the smells and the bells, as they say. <laughs> But if you go to a Byzantine church, there's there's certain symbols and symbolism mm -hmm. that makes it absolutely crystal clear what's happening here. Mm -hmm. You know, the priest is the only there's there's doors in the middle of the church. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a thing called iconic uh, iconostasis, so it's like a screen that separates the area around the altar from yeah. the area where the people are. Right. Yeah. So that is uh, kind of it's it's like the altar rail in a lot of older you know Roman Catholic churches, mm -hmm. right. It's more pronounced because it goes floor to ceiling rather than just a few feet high, two yeah. feet high. But it's a separate, it's a boundary, mm. right? Because the, the body of the church, the nave or the, the seating area, it represents earth, mm. right? Mm. And then that's heaven. Yeah. So there's this barrier between heaven and earth. And even though the veil tore when Jesus died on the cross, the veil in yeah. the temple tore, the curtain tore, that tore the separation between God and man, yes. But there's still this separation between this life and the life after. Mm. But when the doors open, when the liturgy begins, then doors open in the middle, the royal doors, they call them. And the priest comes out and it represents now that boundary mm. between heaven and earth is blurred. Mm. You know, that boundary is open and we're entering in because, you know, during mass, when we the holy, holy, holy yeah. right before, you know, then the consecration. We're joining, the priest says, in, in the Latin rite, the priest says, let us join all the angels and saints mm -hmm. who forever sing your hymn of an end and glory. And then we sing the Holy Holy. That comes from Isaiah, and it also comes from Revelation. And both Isaiah and John the Revelator, St. John, mm -hmm. saw in heaven 
all the angels around the throne of God singing that hymn, that mm -hmm. thrice holy hymn of praise. So we're joining in on that. Like that isn't just, you know, that isn't just something the priest says. We're literally in heaven at all times, eternally. Everyone in heaven is praising God, right? Mm -hmm. Saying holy, you know, holy, holy. And that's an Eastern tradition that saying holy three times really magnifies mm -hmm. how holy God is. It's beyond comprehension how holy God is. So that's, we're entering into that prayer. Well, when you go to a divine liturgy in a Byzantine church, when they open them doors, you realize, like, hold on a second here. This is heaven and earth. You know, the boundary between heaven and earth is open, and now we're joining in on the heavenly worship that goes on permanently in heaven, where Jesus is offering himself to the Father on our behalf as both the priest and victim. And so it really is, like, that's just one of the things. <laughs> and like I said, I'd encourage anyone to go to a Byzantine church. They, they usually also have this, um, like, you it's kind of similar to old testament worship where you're actually entering the holy of holies and there's that demarcation is very clear that yes, yes that you are entering the holy of holies this altar is is really something that is that is precious and you feel a very distinct level of holiness or or amazement when you're when you're actually at an eastern church Right. And that's what I think we've lost so much in the West. That we've, we've lost that beauty and that awe, mm. you know, and the reverence. And, it, you know, not everywhere. It's not every church. But, and I go around the country a lot and I see some beautifully done churches, you know, even newly built churches mm. that are beautiful and are very reverent and very traditionally designed, you know, the way yeah. they have altar rails around them and stuff. But... I've been to some churches that it, you know, you don't know if you're at, am I at a mass or is this just, you know, a gathering of the, you know, the local AA, you, know, like, you don't know what it is. Cause it isn't really, there's nothing. The priest gets up and the priest doesn't even have really vestments on. He's just kind of, it, the, there's, you know, good and bad. Mm. But when you go to the Byzantine church, they really have kind of that old, it feels like you've stepped back in time, mm. you know, in, in the best possible way, yeah. <laughs> you know, you've gone back in time to, like, you've gone back in time to the Old Testament, like you said, yeah. like, to the temple in Jerusalem, and this is, you know, this is the holy place, this is where you can go as not a ordained minister, and this is where only an ordained minister, a priest, or a deacon can go beyond this line. Okay. So, other than that, now, there are a lot of other, um, churches okay there could be there's lutherans there's protestants there's pentecostals and they also have what they call a service basically and nowadays you see a lot of them have very very similar things to what catholics do in in the sense that they will have bread they will have wine they will break toast or whatever and they have they call the same thing now a service so how is this different from what all these other denominations are doing Right. Well, I mean, like I said at the beginning, it all comes back to the Eucharist. Mm. You know, if if the Eucharist isn't what the church says it is, if that isn't, if you look at the Eucharist in the hands of the priest, and that really just is bread and wine, it's mm. not the body and blood of Christ. Well, then we're missing out big time because, you know, they've got rock concerts with fog machines and smoke and strobe lights and stuff. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got an old marble, you know, gymnasium with wooden pews that aren't very comfortable. So, I mean, if, it, if the Eucharist isn't real, then all this is for nothing, mm. you know? But the Eucharist is what sets it apart. The Eucharist is what sets apart the Catholic Church and, the, you know, the, both Eastern and Western Catholic Churches and the Eastern Orthodox, too. Mm. 
the Eucharist is what sets everything apart because if that's not what the church says is, then all this, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. We can go to any denomination, like you said, we can go to any church service, we can go to one of the mega churches mm. and hear a really good motivational talk and, you know, a really good rock band beforehand. But if the Eucharist is what we say it is, which I believe with my whole heart it is, then that's the difference. That's, you know, that's Jesus present there. And Jesus is giving himself to us, you know, for this journey that we're on towards heaven. You know, we're on this pilgrimage towards heaven and we need food for the journey. And he's giving himself as the food for the journey. So what would you say to somebody who says, well, my church, whatever denomination it may be, is also celebrating the Eucharist. I mean, there are people who are going to, who are going to write back definitely and say that, well, we are having the Eucharist because that's what we call it. So how is, right. what will you say to them? Well, there are some, well, most, most Protestants, or most non-Catholic churches, most Protestant churches uh, have some form of like commemoration of the Last Supper or uh, they'll call it, you know, commun- they have different words for it. Hardly any of them call it the Eucharist, except like the Anglicans will call it the Eucharist. Mm. But they'll call it, you know, uh, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, communion, breaking bread. There's a bunch of different words they have for it. But if you ask them, well, what is that you're partaking in? Mm. They'll say, like, well, it's a representation of Jesus' sacrament. Okay. But it's not actually Jesus you're consuming, right? And if they say yes, and you say, well, then why aren't you Catholic? Mm. You know? <laughs> if you believe that, then you need to come over, you know, swim across the Tiber and come join us. <laughs> but if, you know, a lot of them will say, because I mean, I was Protestant for over 30 years of my life. And... I would have said, well, no, it's, you know, we partake. What I would have said, if someone asked me, like, what do you believe when you take communion? I'd say, well, it's Jesus. It's a representation. It's us to remember Jesus's death on the cross, or it's a commemoration of the Lord's Supper because he said, do this in memory of me. So that's why we're doing it. But if you notice, 90% of Protestant churches, of non-Catholic churches, partake in communion like quarterly or monthly. Mm-hmm. right some some churches is only yearly they do it once a year so they don't really put much weight in it they only yeah. do it because jesus actually literally says do this in memory of me so they're like well i guess we're supposed to do it <laughs> but they don't really have a schedule on when to do it mm-hmm. if it's so important you think you'd do it more often yeah you know i've only, i've rarely seen a protestant church that has weekly communion i have seen it but it's not very common it's mm-hmm. usually monthly at the most mm-hmm. and They'll all say, they'll all have different reasons for why they're doing it, but none of them will say that this is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, because it's not, unless it's in the hands of a priest. Mm. Because when Jesus commissioned the disciples at the Last Supper, the apostles of the Last Supper, he commissioned them, and he said, this is my blood that's poured out for you. The word that he used for poured out was a sacrificial, occultic sacrificial word. Mm-hmm. Only the priests mm-hmm. in the Old Covenant had the ability to pour out the sacrifices upon the altar, the libation mm-hmm. sacrifice. You couldn't do that if you weren't a priest. Mm-hmm. So by him telling them, do this in memory of me, he was commissioning them as the priests of the new covenant. Mm-hmm. And that's, you can't be a non-priest. So they, a lot of Protestants, they won't believe in the ministerial priesthood. They'll say there's yeah. a priesthood of all believers, right? Yeah. So yes, we agree. The Catholic Church agrees with that. Yes, all people that are baptized, men, women, children, Everyone that's baptized is baptized into the the priestly office of Jesus, the prophetic office of Jesus, and the the the, the king, the monarchical office of Jesus. You know, the priest, prophet, and king. 
We're all baptized into that. But there's a difference between the ministerial priesthood and the priesthood, the common priesthood. Mm. And there even was a difference back in the Old Covenant. You know, before they worshipped the golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai, all Israelites were able to offer sacrifice to God. Mm. But after that break with God, because of their idolatry, it becomes now just the Levites are the only ones that offer the sacrifices. Mm. And then only the sons of Aaron are the priests, priests that are yeah. the actual priests of the Old Covenant. And the Levites are kind of like the, uh, the, they're the high priests, the Aaronic priesthood, mm. and the Levites are kind of the common priests. So they got that took away from them because of their sin. Mm. And it was like Abraham, when Abraham had the child of Hagar, he, because of that, he had now circumcision comes into the picture. Mm. You know, so there's different, because of these different breaks of the covenants all through the Old Testament, there's different strictures put in on the covenant. Mm. That happened in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, too, there was levels of the priesthood in the Old Testament, and there continues to be levels of priesthood in the New Testament. So if you're not an ordained priest, you can call the bread and wine that you have at your church service, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> but it isn't the body of Christ. And I, I, I mean, I don't mean to be like, you know, confrontational about it, but it's just not. Mm. So Especially for churches that don't believe it. You know, they really, but there are some churches that believe they're confecting the Eucharist, mm, yeah. but they're not validly ordained priests, and so they can't. Like, I can't just go out into my house and say, you know what, today I've decided that I'm a priest. <laughs> and then celebrate a mass in my living room and make, you know, a piece of bread and a glass of wine, the Eucharist. I can't do that. I don't have that ability. So speaking of confrontation, uh, what about, now there's, I know, especially in social media, you see a lot, and this is like Catholic Twitter, Catholic whatever has become such a, such a, a, a battlefield. Battle yeah. With, <laughs> with people saying, oh, TLM is so much better. You guys should come over to us. We should go over to you and, and all of this stuff. At the heart of it, it is still the one Jesus, the one same true Jesus yes. who never seems to change. And we seem to be changing all of these things. So what to say to people who are so divisive about over these traditions of mass? Right. See, I, it's good. I think it's good to speak your mind. And I think it's good to stick up for, you know, what you believe in and stuff. But that word that you said, divisive, that is the key, is that's one of the fruits of the devil is sowing discord among the mm -hmm. brethren. It says that right in the New Testament, that that's what the devil does. He sows discord. I mean, even the word itself, devil, diabolos, is divider mm. you know the devil divides and i think it's a it's, it's you know one of the greatest crimes against christianity has been the divisions yeah. jesus in john chapter 17 prayed lord you know god father let them be one as you and i are one mm. so that the world would know i sent them mm. right he prayed that and he prayed that twice he prayed that two separate times in john chapter 17 and then pope john paul ii wrote an encyclical ut unum sint that they may be one, yeah. right? And that's where he called the Eastern and Western churches the two lungs of the church that had to breathe. The first major, you know, there was a Chalcedon schism, and there was this schism, and that schism. The great schism of 1054 was the, the first major rupture in the unity of the church. Mm. That's where you said, you know, the Eastern and the Western church. And then you have the Protestant Revolution in 1517, mm. and that was another rupture in Western Europe. Mm. And the Eastern Orthodox will say, well, you guys in the Western church you ruptured in 1517, and then Luther and Calvin ruptured from each other, and mm. then Zwingli come along, and now there's thousands of Well, the Eastern Orthodox have also had, you know, multiple, each one of the bishops are a, 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 an authority unto themselves, and mm. none of them have any say over the other ones. They've all 
know, there's the Bulgarian Orthodox Church, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Each nation has its own Orthodox Church. Mm. And none of them are, they're in communion, but it's like a loose communion, you know? Mm. So they've had, they've fared just as poorly as we have <laughs> as far as unity goes. And I really, it, it, it does, it grieves me, you know, coming from a Protestant background, now I converted to Catholicism. I don't hate Protestants at all. Mm. And I don't hate Eastern Orthodox. I think we all need to be one. I really do. I pray for the unity of the church all the time because disunity is not of God. Mm. You know, this division and divisiveness isn't of God. Jesus prayed he literally right before he's just about to be put to death. He knows what's coming. And what does he do? He prays that we may be one. Mm. You know, that was his prayer in John 17. So as far as divisiveness goes, I love a lot mass. I went to a few in the past few months, a couple I went to on accident, who I didn't even know was a Latin Mass. I walked in, and the priest says, back, you know, facing the altar, and I noticed the vestments were disciplined, and then I heard him chanting in Latin. I was like, oh, man, you know, <laughs> I lucked out here. I just happened to walk into this church at the right time, at the right place, and here I am. Mm. But my parish, my home parish, is a uh, ordinary form, so it's, you know, the regular mm. in English Mass. It's very reverent. I think Father Robert and Father Taylor and Father Edward do a beautiful job but I go to that parish and that's my home parish. But I do love going to Latin mass. I also love going to Eastern churches. Mm. I, I want to try to visit, you know, all the different types of Eastern Catholic churches mm. and, uh, you know, a Roman Catholic. So if you're a Latin mass, a right Catholic, you can go to an Eastern church, an Eastern Catholic church, and you can receive the Eucharist because we're all, we're all Catholic, mm. you know? And it's funny too, because when you go to them kind of off topic, but they pray for the Pope mm. in their, uh, in their liturgy in the divine liturgy, like 10 or 15 times you'll hear and for pope francis our holy father pope francis the bishop of rome and they they pray for him mm. like all through the liturgy you know mm. way more than we do <laughs> and we're latin you know we're roman catholics and we play for the pope once yeah. during the uh, eucharistic prayer they do it like 10 times but yeah i think the disunity and the, everyone at each other's throats and like i like the ordinary form and i like the extraordinary form and, and people willing to kill each other over this mm. um, not literally but still like on the internet, I think part of it has to do with social media. Mm -hmm. Everyone's so tough when they're behind a keyboard and you don't have to say something to someone's face. And it's all anonymous. Mm -hmm. You know, if you yell at someone from Australia that likes Latin mass better than the ordinary form of the mass, you're never going to see that person at the water cooler, you know, at your work mm -hmm. or, you know, sit at, you know, sit in the restaurant next to them at the table. So people's much more coarse to each other online than they are in person. But that a lot of that online coarseness is bleeding into normal everyday life. Mm. I think it's really where we're spiraling down as far as decency goes and civility towards each other. And I just, yeah, like I said, I think divisiveness is of the devil, 100%. But also, I wouldn't roll over and say, like, well, I'm just going to agree to everything you say just because I don't want to be divisive. No, there's, you know, there's a, there's a line there. I don't mm. want to cross that line. I try to be cordial and civil with everyone I talk to. I believe certain things. They might believe certain things. I'll try to convince them of my point of view, but without, you know, without fighting with them, because you can have an argument without having a fight. You know, people's lost the ability to have an argument to put mm -hmm. forth evidence for their position, you know, and make a case yeah. without, you know, becoming ad hominem attacks or, you know, yeah. building up straw men just to attack them. So I think we could take a, a lesson from Thomas Aquinas and just put forward a, you know, a good case and a good defense but like St. Peter said, you know, but always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that's in you, but do it with love. Yeah.
And and any kingdom that is um, divided against itself would not stand, right? And so yeah, uh, whatever right. we're doing on social media is kind of an example of, is a reflection of the church in general. If we are fighting right on social media, you can imagine, people must be wondering, I wonder what, what's going on within the church if it is like this on the outside. Right. Yeah, this is what they're doing in public. What are they doing in private? <laughs> imagine if you were considering, if you were like considering, like, yeah, I'm going to, yeah. I'm thinking about maybe I want to convert to Catholicism and you decide to check out hashtag Catholic Twitter, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that might turn you off. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I try to stay off of Catholic Twitter myself too, yeah. just because it can be so divisive. And, and the thing is that I agree with, a, I, there's a lot of people on Catholic Twitter that I, I completely hundred percent disagree with their style. You know, I don't like the divisiveness. I don't, but I agree with the substance of what they're saying. I just wish they were a little more, you know, refined in the way they say it, because, because mm. like I said, I do love the Latin mass mm. and I love tradition. I'm very traditional, but at the same time, I don't think calling people who go to a ordinary form of the mass heretics, <laughs> is <laughs> not only is that not accurate, I don't think that's accurate at all, but it's not helpful either. Yeah. Like it's wrong and it's wrong headed. <laughs> you know, the church, I'm not the Pope. Neither is anyone on Twitter except for Pope Francis, you know, but I'm not the Pope. And so I don't get to decide who is and isn't in the church, mm. who is and isn't a heretic. Mm. You know, that's a, that's a word that gets thrown around a lot, yeah. heretic too. And, you know, I, I think my opinion is if the church says we can have mass in what's, you know, what we call the ordinary form. So like your regular, what you'd go to a regular Sunday mass, your local parish church, that's the ordinary form of the, the mass. That's okay, right? Yeah. You can say, I don't like that. I like the Latin mass better. That's that's a fine opinion. But the church has said, this is a valid form of the mass. It's yeah. a valid liturgy to worship Jesus Christ, to worship the Father and to worship the Holy Spirit, to receive the Eucharist and to, you know, fulfill your Sunday obligation. This mm. is valid, mm. okay? I am not, I, I'm, I'm not even a priest, <laughs> I'm just a layman, but I have no authority to say, no, you know what, church, you're wrong. <laughs> I'm right, you're wrong. Because what does that make me any different than Martin Luther, right? Mm, I mean, yeah. we're Catholics. If we say that we're an authority unto ourselves and we're not bound to the magisterium of the church, then we're putting ourselves outside of communion with the church. Yeah. And I don't want to be outside of communion with the church. church yeah. I didn't become Catholic to then turn around and say, you know what? I'm right and everyone else is wrong. Yeah. My father used to tell me, if you think you're the only one right and everyone around you is wrong, you might want to rethink your position. <laughs> Wise words. So yeah. today, the thing is, with um, spiritual communion happening, with a lot of lockdown happening, uh, there are many, many people who are not even Christian who are now participating in the Eucharist. And there's this whole new talk about how they can be Catholic without really becoming Catholic. So how can everybody participate in the Eucharist, even though, and I see this all the time, you know, uh, people who come late to Mass, people who have had breakfast, like just before stepping into the door, you can celebrate the Eucharist without like taking in the bread and wine. So how can right. everyone participate in the Eucharist at the same time following the discipline of the Mass? Right. Well, yeah, see, because we have, as Latin Rite Catholics, we have an obligation to attend Mass on every Sunday and every Holy Day of Obligation, mm -hmm. right? We don't have an obligation to receive the Eucharist, though, on yeah. those same days. Okay. So the, the point is, you're supposed to be there, be present, 
be physically, spiritually present, right, and worship God and pray along with the priest. But you're not under any obligation to receive the Eucharist, except for once a year, and it should be during the Easter season, mm-hmm. which a lot of people probably missed out on this year because, yeah. you know, Easter is like when all this really kicked off, you know, off the, <laughs> the lockdown and stuff. It seems like the devil really timed it, mm. right? Yeah, so you're only under obligation to receive the Eucharist once a year. I wouldn't recommend that as, you know, a Catholic who I, I derive a lot of strength from receiving yes, the Eucharist. Yes. And it was painful, yeah. like physically and spiritually painful to watch Mass on TV. And they gave us the prayers to pray the spiritual communion when it come time to communion. And I would watch my parish start live streaming the Mass. Mm. Uh, I think it was like a week or two weeks after the lockdowns began. And they would read this prayer of spiritual communion. You know, Jesus, I even though I can't receive you physically now, I receive yeah. you spiritually and come into my heart and be with me always. And that helped. <laughs> but it wasn't really the same. It didn't feel completely the same. And it mm-hmm. was because I've only been to Mass probably since I've been Catholic maybe two or three times mm-hmm. where I wasn't in a state of grace mm-hmm. or whatever extenuating circumstance yeah. where I couldn't receive the Eucharist. Yeah. And it hurt me. Yeah. Like I actually felt this physical longing. Like I can't believe what, you know, what's going on here. I overslept and I couldn't, you know, get to confession <laughs> yeah. in time. Whatever the reason was. I didn't like it. Yeah. And I, you know, I endeavored to, I'm never going to do that again. And I went, that was like two years ago. It happened to me the first time. And I, cause I missed the, the, the post of confession times. I mm. couldn't find confession anywhere around. Mm. And so I went to mass without going to confession. And it had been like a month since I went to confession and I just, I couldn't receive the Eucharist. You feel but, it. Yeah. And then, then the lockdowns happened and I couldn't receive the Eucharist for probably you know, a month or two months. Mm. And, I didn't like it one bit, but there is, you know, we're under obligation to attend mass. We're not under obligation to receive the Eucharist. So we're all called. We have to depend on where you're at because the bishops have been given dispensations because a lot of people can't go to mass right now. Mm-hmm. They're just, you know, it's not happening depending yeah. on where you're at in the world. Yeah. So, yeah, but everyone can participate. Even non, you know, non-Catholics can go to mass and, and pray along. Mm-hmm. You know, the, there's nothing, there's nothing to stop them from doing that. You can't receive the Eucharist if you're not Catholic, mm. but there's nothing to stop you from being there physically present. You, you would still receive graces, certain graces, not all the graces available because the Eucharist is the pinnacle of all the grace, mm. right? Mm. But you still do receive grace just by being there and being at the mass, being present. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for talking to us about the various traditions of um, the Catholic mass and uh tell people where they can find you online and about your book yeah uh, my book is called uh, the beauty of the mass and it is available on amazon and you can find me online uh, i'm very active on facebook mostly like i said catholic twitter has kind of <laughs> left a bad taste in my mouth a lot of times uh but i'm on facebook as uh, now that i'm catholic uh i think it's catholic con- facebook.com slash Catholic convert 2016, or you can just put in the search bar now that I'm Catholic. And uh, I'm very, I'm always posting stuff on Facebook. And my website is now that I'm Catholic.com. Okay, great. So thank you for talking to us after a very long time, Charles, and hope to have yeah. you back again. I hope to be back. Yes, thank you very much. It was a pleasure.